But please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 10. Today we're going to continue our study of Jesus' seven I Am statements by looking at his statement, I Am the Door. Fortunately for you all, this one is only four verses as opposed to the 47 that we tried to tackle last time. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. Um, you know, one of the big words, the big buzzwords today in our culture is political correctness. Everybody must be politically correct. Whether you go to school or you go to work, when you're out in your community, everybody's got to be politically correct, right? I mean, that's just kind of what our culture tells us. That's what our culture asks or demands of us. And, you know, originally I think this started out as a really good thing. I did. I mean, we ought to be sensitive to other people. We ought to be considerate of others and their circumstances, whether they be racial or cultural or gender-specific, if they have a disability or it could be a, an issue of socioeconomic status. We ought to be considerate of those things. But unfortunately, our culture has quickly taken that and they've twisted it. They've distorted that. They've now brought that uh, term, political correctness, to mean the equivalent of tolerance. And those who are uh, more progressive in their political and social views now uh, demand that political correctness mean that we be liberal, that we be inclusive. And that everything that we say or do be inoffensive. And these ideas and attitudes have not only uh, surrounded us politically and in social, uh, social spheres, but they've also uh, found their way into the realm of religion. Now, it's not politically correct to make exclusive claims. It's now inconsiderate to have a strong sense of right and wrong that is based upon biblical teaching rather than what the media tells us to believe. It's now intolerant to have a high view of God, to have a high view of morality, to have a high view of scripture, to have a high view of truth. This set of ideas, this worldview, has eroded the need for faith Altogether. I mean, if you think about it, rather than believing that God, who created everything, who is the author of truth and the authority over all creation, who gives us the hope of salvation according to his particular plan, our culture now embraces pluralism. This idea that Jesus is just one way to God. Rather than needing to worship God in spirit and in truth, we have bought into this idea that truth is relative, subject to our own personal preferences. No longer am I subject to the Creator God, but the idea of God, which I embrace or I dismiss, is subject to my own authority. So I can worship this idea of God as I please, or I can reject Him as I please, and the results of that are inconsequential. They don't really matter. When the truth and authority of God is made subject to personal preference, we lose the very recognition that we even need to be saved. I mean, think about this for a minute. If I can't know truth absolutely, and I am my own authority, then what is it that I need to be saved from exactly? I mean... 
How, how is that possible? What, and then, why do I even need a Savior? The result is that the way in which we are saved no longer even matters. Jesus is just as good as Buddha, is just as good as Atman, is just as good as Allah, is just as good as my ancestors, and just as good as myself. There's really no distinction. And when we lose our need for and the way of salvation, inevitably, guys, we lose hope. Your very faith is made futile. No more the matter of personal preference than, than your preference in movies, your preference in music, your preference in clothing, your preference in ice cream flavor. That type of relative, tolerant, indifferent, apathetic, subjective, blind, unintelligible faith is really no faith at all. That's the kind of faith that today is considered politically correct. But that's not the kind of faith that Jesus promotes. That's not the kind of faith that Jesus demands. When Jesus says, I am the door, he is making an exclusive claim. He says that he is the exclusive truth. That he is the exclusive authority. That he is the exclusive way to salvation. And that he is the exclusive hope in God. So today, as we read this historical account of Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders of his day, we must respond to that claim. What is true? What is authoritative? What is this way of salvation? And where can I truly find my hope? But before we go any farther, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that as we meditate on your word today, we would recognize it to be what it truly is, that it is truth. We pray that it would open our eyes to a greater sense of of your sovereign rule over all creation and of our desperate need of salvation from our sin through the shed blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I, I pray that the result of this truth would well up within us an abiding, sustaining, transforming, joy-giving hope. A hope that does not disappoint, for your love has been poured out into the hearts of those who have been called according to your purpose through the Holy Spirit who has been given to them. And so God, as we study your word, we pray that you would be with us. And it is in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Now, as quickly as I can, I'd like to set up the context of this passage because this context will apply not only to this week, but to next week when we look at Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. You see, chapters 9 and 10 go together. This is one event that's happening. In chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples come across a man who was born blind. Okay, And as, as they were passing along, the disciples looked at Jesus and they said, Why is this man blind? Is it the result of his sin or is it the result of his parents that he was born this way? And Jesus says, it's neither. But it's so that the work of God might be displayed. And so Jesus goes to the man, he puts mud on his eyes, and then he asks him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And when the man washes for the first time ever, he can see. He has sight. Jesus and his disciples then move on, but the crowd begins to gather around this man because they recognize, hey, that's the guy who's been born blind. How is it that he can see? Is that truly him? And so 
they're so amazed, they do what they're supposed to do in that day, and they, they take the man and they, they present him to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders of the day, because it was their job to affirm that this man was clean, that he was no longer defiled, that this truly was the work of God to heal this man and to give him sight. But as the Pharisees began to question, they realized that Jesus had actually healed this man on the Sabbath. And they're like, well, that Jesus is sinning. He can't do that. And so rather than seeing what God had done there, they just began to argue. They didn't believe the man. So they called in his parents. They asked them. The parents said, yeah, this is our son. He was born blind. But, you know, he's, he's a big boy. You can ask him whether or not Jesus healed him. So they bring him back in. They ask him again. But all the while... All the while, rather than verifying that this man was made clean by God, they were on the defensive. They said, we can't affirm that this man is from God. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke through Moses, but we don't know about this guy. We don't know that God spoke through him. And the man born blind turns to them and he says this thing that's just so amazing that I just want to read it. He says, he answered them, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has, has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. It's never happened in the history of creation. This is the first time ever that we know of. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This man who was born blind could see that Jesus had done something that was unheard of. And that had he not been from God, he could not do those things. But rather than hearing what he said, rather than opening their eyes to what God had done before them, they actually hardened their hearts and they cast him out saying that this man was born in utter sin. Rather than believing, these Pharisees failed at their jobs because they wanted to be the spiritual authority. Right? And so by doing, they blinded themselves to the work of God. Chapter 10 then flows directly out of 9. It's a continuation of the same event. And Jesus now begins to contrast himself as a good shepherd with these wicked shepherds, these, these religious leaders who were blind, who could not see, who were using their positions of a spiritual authority for their own personal gain and to exalt themselves rather than doing what they were intended to do. And so it's within this context that Jesus says, I am the door. And I should just say, we're not going to read verses 1 through 6, but 7 through 10 is an expansion, not an explanation of 1 through 6. He's building off of this shepherding metaphor. He's not trying to describe what he meant in 1 through 6. He's building upon it. Okay? And so with that, let's read verses 7 through 10. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
And the first certainty that Jesus gives us in this passage is that He is the exclusive truth of God. Right off the bat, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus doesn't say to them, You know, in my opinion, it's this. Or, in my limited, relative point of view, I'm the door. Instead, He says, This is really, really true. Of this, I am emphatically certain. I could not be more absolute, more unwavering, more incontestably accurate. Jesus says the phrase, truly, truly, I say to you, 25 times in John, in order to stress that what he says is true, what he says is fact, what he says is real, is genuine, is right. John more than any other gospel, goes to great pains to establish the truth of who Jesus is. He uses that word truth 26 times in his gospel. In John 1.14, he says, Jesus is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In 1.17, he says, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verses 23 and 24 said that all who worship the Father must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Jesus being that truth. In 5.33, John the Baptist bore witness to Jesus being the truth. In chapter 8, verses 31 through 47, Jesus gives, uh, excuse me, Jesus proclaims that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. In 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And in chapters 14, 15, and 16, the Holy Spirit, the one who is promised to dwell in all true believers, is called the Spirit of Truth. And the reason that Jesus can be so confident in making such claims is because He is the Creator of Truth. Whatever can be known has been made known by God who desires that all mankind be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And this God, this God of all knowledge, this creator of all truth makes himself known most fully, most completely, most certainly in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fullest, absolute truth of God. But lest we think that that was then and this is now, that back then, you know, people just naturally believed in absolute truth, but today we know better than that. We're smarter than that. We know that, that truth is really relative and we can't buy into that. I just want to draw your attention to John 18, where Jesus interacts with Pilate. In 18, verse 37, he says, um, Pilate was questioning Jesus. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Then Pilate said to him, What is truth? Pilate's not asking because he wants to know the truth. Pilate's asking because he's doubting that there's truth. He questions truth. 
after this, Pilate inevitably handed Jesus over to be crucified. You see, Pilate was a Roman, a man that would have either worshipped multiple gods or may have not worshipped any gods at all. He questioned whether truth could be absolutely known, and in the end, rather than listening to the truth, he handed Jesus over to be crucified. He was not ultimately concerned about the truth. So even then, even then, truth was not politically correct. I mean, here's Pilate. He's, he's in politics. He's a governor, right? It's not politically correct. And the same is true today. I was reading in John MacArthur's little book, Why One Way, uh, this illustration that he gave um, Two months after September 11th in 2001, uh, the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, the former U.S. President Bill Clinton gave a speech at Georgetown University in which he suggested that America's own arrogant and self-righteousness was partially to blame for making, a nation, making the nation a target of terrorism. Apparently, Clinton believed that the whole mess could have been avoided if everyone on both sides had simply realized that there's no such thing as absolute or universal truth. And therefore, no ideology is worth fighting for. He says, nobody's got the truth. You're at a university that basically believes that no one can ever, ever has the whole truth, ever. We are incapable of having the whole truth. The terrorists... Clinton suggests, are being brutal and intolerant because they believe that they have the truth, whereas our society's more tolerant attitudes are rooted in an understanding that absolute truth is unknowable. They believe they've got it, he said, because we don't believe that you can have the whole truth. We think everybody counts. Well, that sounds really good, doesn't it? That thinking everybody counts, right? That seems very loving. That seems very considerate. And yeah, I'd say it's true. If you believe that there's no absolute truth, you believe that everybody counts except Christ. You can't believe that everybody counts and Christ doesn't. If we follow that line of thinking, we would trade a God who is absolute in all his attributes, including truth, for a world in which we are the absolute dictators of truth in our own minds. The loss of absolute truth is a loss of the spirit of truth. The relativization of truth is a relativization of the God of truth. And when we make truth subjective, We make Jesus, who calls himself the truth, we make him optional. But Jesus, the Son of God, says to us, Truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you. The second certainty that Jesus gives us in this passage is that he is the exclusive authority from God. Here Jesus makes an authoritative statement. I am the door of the sheep. He uses Old Testament language to refer both to God and to his people. The words I am draw on God's revelation of himself to Moses when he came to Moses and told him to go to Egypt and to liberate his people from their slavery. 
When Moses asked in Ephesians, or I'm sorry, Exodus 3.14, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. The words of I am are also used by God in the book of Isaiah to contrast himself with idols that were made by human hands, which were meant to represent false deities. I am is exclusively reserved for Yahweh. They were the words that he used to disclose himself, his plans to redeem his people, his intentions to fulfill all his promises. They carry with them all the authority of the Almighty God. And here they are spoken by his Son, the one who would redeem, the one who would fulfill all his promises, the one who carries all the authority of his Father. Jesus says, I am the door, the gate to the sheep. Sheep was used numerous times in the Old Testament to refer to God's people. I mean, just one example, a very well-known song, Psalm 23. David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If God is David's shepherd, then what is David? David is a sheep. And this this. Uh, metaphor is used many, many times throughout the Old Testament to refer to God's people, God's flock. And so here Jesus is saying with all authority that he is God's means of entrance into the people of God, into God's flock. To be one of God's sheep, under God's authority, under God's care, under God's provision, under God's leadership, you must enter by the gate. You must enter by his door. You will not be part of the kingdom of God unless you submit yourself to God's standard for entrance into the flock of his possession. So here, Jesus claims exclusive authority over God's people. Jesus goes on to say in in verse 8, that all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. He says that all those who have gone before me are wicked. They're violent abusers. They're self-seeking crooks. They're feeding upon the sheep for their own personal gain. Here he's referring to those, those crooked religious leaders, those messianic pretenders, those false prophets who creep into positions of spiritual authority so that they can feed off of the flock, so that they can exalt themselves and use their position for personal gain. These people, they promise peace, but they lead the people into war. They promise plenty, but they actually steal from the sheep. They promise life, but lead to destruction. And they use their positions to exalt themselves. You know, false teachers have been around since Satan disguised himself as a snake in the garden. And the Bible, time and time again promises that Antichrist will always be with us until Christ comes again. False teachers will always be present. Sometimes they're obvious. Sometimes they can easily be identified as being heretical. But more often than not, they're subtle. And what they do is slowly lead the sheep away, little by little by little, to deny the faith that was once for all delivered 
to the saints. And how they do it, they do it by exalting themselves over God's authoritative, unified, inerrant word. When they begin to deviate away from God's revealed will, that's how you can identify someone who's a false teacher. We've seen it on a large scale. I mean, you think of examples like Joseph Smith. You think of Jim Jones. You think of David Koresh. But it happens more often on a daily basis, in a smaller scale, when we place ourselves in authority over the revealed will of God. Apart from submitting ourselves to the exclusive authority of God, we too could be these thieves and robbers, or at least led astray by them. But nevertheless, Jesus gives us a great promise. He says the true sheep will not listen to them. Those who belong to God as part of His people will hear the voice of His Messiah, His one and only Son, and they will follow Him. True sheep will submit to the exclusive authority of Christ. And when we are certain that Jesus is the exclusive truth and the exclusive authority of God, third, we can then be confident that He is the exclusive way to God. Guys, if if we lose this truth that the Holy God created the heavens and the earth and and all that has filled them and has revealed Himself to man most fully through Jesus Christ, and we lose this sense of authority that because He made us, He has right to rule over us and that every minute of our lives are owed to Him because He He sustains us and has created us for a purpose. If we lose these things... We're not going to see our need for salvation. If we lose truth, we lose authority, we lose our very need to be saved. If God, if it's not true that God created us for His glory, it doesn't matter whether or not we've rebelled against Him. If God is not the rightful authority of our lives, then we don't have to answer to Him. You can't sin against somebody that has no authority over you. Therefore, you would not need to be saved. Or, if you can't be certain of truth, or you can't be certain of authority, then the way in which you're saved really becomes arbitrary. It doesn't matter. One Savior is just as good as another. It could be Jesus. It could be something else. In fact, I mean, how could we we even be sure that we're not all saved? You know? When you lose truth and authority, you've got got no right to just say, you know what? We can't really be certain of anything. We're just going to hope that in the end it all works out and we all end up in heaven. It's this type of uncertainty that actually led Muhammad Gandhi when questioned why he sought to convert people to his way of thinking politically, but prohibited proselytizing in religion, it led him to say, you know, in the realm of, pol- of the political and the social and the economic, we can be sufficiently certain to convert. But in the realm of religion, there is not sufficient certainty to convert anybody. Therefore, there can be no conversions in religion. He questioned truth. He questioned authority. He said, you can't be certain of these things, so you, know, you, can, you can have that in, in the political and social realms, 
So you can convert people to your way of thinking there, but in the realm of religion, because there's no certainty, you can't convert anybody. And I would agree with him on that point. I disagree that you can't be certain. But I agree that if there is no certainty, there's no conversion. If someone is unsure, if they're uncertain, then you can't convert them. Without truth and without authority, you are left with a pluralistic religion at best, where many, if not all, roads lead to God. They can lead there because without truth and authority, no one needs to be saved. If there's no certainty, there's no conversion. But Jesus, in verse 9, says, I I am the door. I am the door. And here he may be alluding to Psalm 118.20, where it says, This is the gate of the Lord, and the righteous shall enter through it. Because Psalm 118 certainly applies to Jesus elsewhere when they refers to him as the stone which the builder rejected. But here, Jesus is clearly saying, I am the way of entrance into God's sheepfold. There is one access to God. Those who enter by me will indeed be saved. Jesus definitely affirms that we need to be saved and that He is the only means of our salvation. He said, All others have come to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus is the way to eternal life. So He says to us, Yes, you need to be saved. Every one of you needs to be saved. Those outside of God's sheepfold are not saved. So if you want to be counted among God's flock, you must come through Jesus. This requires, first of all, that you recognize that you're outside that sheepfold. You have rebelled against God in thought, in word, in action, and have deservedly fallen under the wrath of God. This requires that you have a longing to be with God. You desire to be in the sheepfold. You see Him as good. You see Him as loving. You see Him as gracious. But you also see Him as holy, just, and righteous. Therefore, come to God. to come to God, you must repent of your sin, turn away from it, and seek Him. And it requires that you enter by His gate. That you believe in Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh and lived a perfect life and then gave up that life for your sins. He shed His blood to cover your offenses against God. He, was, he died and was buried. And on the third day, He rose from the grave, giving you hope and promise of new life. A life that will exist in eternity with Him. And this new life will result in a transformation. It will result in a transformation of heart, in a transformation of mind, in a transformation of desire. You will view the world differently. You will live differently. You will desire differently. You'll come to gradually, over time, to put off sin and to put on Christ. You'll become more like Him in thought, in word, and in deed. And you are no longer subject to the wrath of God. No longer a slave to your sinful desires. And He makes this great promise to you. You will have life and have it abundantly.
This exclusive way to God will lead forth to an exclusive hope in God. You know, since creation, the world has sought to find hope in secular saviors. Time and time again, they've trusted in humanistic political heroes who find, who, but inevitably find that their latter state was worse than the first. The world has hoped in its Hitlers, in its Stalins, in its Mayos, in its Pol Pots, in its U.S. presidents seeking change, only to find out too late that these saviors have confiscated their personal property. They've stolen their rights. They've trampled human life underfoot. And they have ravaged all that is valuable. They've come only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Ironically, it's not the Christian doctrine of heaven that is a myth, but this humanistic dream of utopia here on earth, apart from God. But Jesus says that he is our only true and lasting hope. Unlike these saviors, Jesus doesn't, these secular saviors, Jesus doesn't mock his subjects. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? I'm the only way, so tough. You just deal with it. I'm the only option you've got. Instead, he promises that those who enter by him, that he has called them by name, and they follow him. He knows them intimately. He knows them individually. We'll see next week that he is the one who loves them as a shepherd that is willing to sacrifice his life for them. He lays down his life for his sheep. Verse 9 tells us that those who enter through him are saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And through him, they will find spiritual nourishment. Through him, they will receive the blessing that comes from obedience. Through him, they will stand secure. And in verse 10, he assures them that all who are in him will have eternal life. And this is not just kind of willy-nilly, kind of boring old harpsichord, you know, singing hymns to God all day long, kind of, Life that sounds, I mean, he says this is life abundantly. You can't even imagine how great and glorious this life will be. Those who are in him will find their lives full and rich and overflowing, not materially, but spiritually. They will experience contentment, they will experience peace, they will experience joy, they will have this living, sustaining, abiding, transforming, heart-gladdening, soul-rejoicing hope. A hope that cannot be squashed by circumstance. The world can't give us this kind of hope. It can't be foiled by affliction. Regardless of trial, regardless of infirmity or persecution or suffering, in Christ we have an unbreakable hope. The world has nothing to offer like that. Has nothing to offer like that. Material possessions cannot give you that kind of hope. And the world dare not dream of such a hope. <laughs> Joy in suffering? Delight during trials? Passion that cannot be overcome by pain? Are you kidding me? Only in Christ. Only in Christ do we receive that kind of hope. That kind of hope only comes from God. 
He is our only hope. He is our lasting hope. But I've got to ask you. I've got to ask you. I need you to pay attention here. Is that hope yours? Can you honestly say that of yourself? That regardless of trial, regardless of affliction, my hope stands secure. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Friends, you may be here having never truly placed your hope and trust in Jesus. Perhaps you've questioned truth. Perhaps you've believed yourself to be the authority of your souls. But I beg you, I beg you, repent and believe in Jesus. Enter through that door. He is the only way to salvation. The only way to God. Come to Him, please, and have life and have it abundantly. Have that kind of hope. You may be here having assumed that you've entered through that gate. You've entered through that door. But when you carefully examine your heart, when you carefully examine your life, you find it empty. You honestly say to yourself, I don't have that kind of hope. That's not, that's not me. To you, I again would say, come to Him. Find your lasting and abiding hope. Wherever you find yourself today, if God is working on your heart, please let somebody know. Talk to someone here. Talk to me. Talk to Jim. Talk to Caleb. Talk to somebody. But do not walk away here having your heart stirred and not responding to it. Seek Him who is the exclusive truth. Seek Him who is the exclusive authority. Seek Him who is the exclusive way to God. And seek Him who is the exclusive hope in God. Friends, the opportunity is yours and they are found exclusively in Jesus Christ. And I just want to close with this thought. Following Christ is not politically correct. It's not. He claims exclusive truth, exclusive authority, exclusive entrance to God, and exclusive soul-satisfying hope. And if we do not believe exclusively in, in Christ, according to this passage, he says there is no truth. There is no authority. There is no way to God. There is no hope. So how do you respond? Do you reject this notion of his exclusivity and say, you know what, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die? Or do we embrace the claim? A claim of love so amazing, so divine, that it demands our lives, it demands our souls, demands our all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of truth and a God who has made that truth known in your Son, Jesus Christ. 
God, we acknowledge that you are the creator, that you are the one who sustains our very lives, who gives us this opportunity to respond to you in faith. God, we recognize that we are accountable to you, that you made us, that you own us, that you rightly rule over us. And God, we recognize that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the hope. And God, we long for that kind of hope. Lord, we long for the kind of faith, the kind of trust that cannot be, cannot be cast off when circumstances are hard, that cannot uh, help us to strengthen us, to endure over pain, over affliction. God, we long for a hope that and we can't even speak of its glory. How wonderful, how abundant, how lush and lavish it is. God, we pray for eyes to see that we might respond as that blind man did. That if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. But yet he has opened my eyes. God, may your work be done here today. We thank you for your word. And it's in the powerful name of Christ we pray. Amen.